Titus chapters 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that in every way... They will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, 
the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Good morning. You know, as I came in here this morning, I noticed a lot of sleepy eyes. I know, I know probably about everybody in here had a, probably a very full, long, enjoyable, exciting week. And I'm hoping as we begin this new week, first day of the week, that we will listen attentively to the Word and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning from His Word. Because all the many good things that happened this past week, I just want to remind you this morning, we've been given much. And one of the good things that He's given to us is His Word. And so, this morning, as best as we are able... Let's uh, do our part to be attentive to His Word and ask of the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning what He would have us to know from His Word. So, in light of that, would you join me as we pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in here to the book of Titus. Father in heaven, you have expressed yourself clearly in the sending of your Son, Jesus, according to the Hebrew writer, is the express image of you, Father. We see elsewhere that he was sent to declare you. And we see also in the word that in Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We thank you for expressing yourself clearly to us through the sending of your Son, Father, you've also expressed yourself clearly by giving to us your revealed word. And this word is available to us. It's truth. Father, you have shown us in your word through your son that this people of yours would be set apart by this word of truth. Father, I pray that it would be true of us, that we would be set apart by this word. There would be something different about us because we have your word to live by. And Father, we see also that you've expressed yourself clearly to us through the promised Holy Spirit who abides with us forever if we are in Christ. And we praise you for expressing yourself to us and for making yourself known to us. And so, Father, as you have articulated yourself to us through your Son, through your word of truth, and through your Spirit, I pray that we, your people, would be able in the coming year to articulate clearly as well, both with our lives and by word of mouth, who we are in you. May it be evident that we belong to you, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. It was said of one of the prophets, this prophet has no name, but a prophet of Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul says in verse 13, chapter 1, this testimony is true. I'd like to ask a question this morning. How do you go about leading a group of people characterized as liars, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons? That seems to be the defining markers of this group of people called the Cretans. Paul is writing this pastoral letter to his son in the faith, chapter 1, verse 4, Titus, with the charge, verse 5 of chapter 1, to set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. As I commanded you. Paul. Paul is writing, moved by the Holy Spirit, writing these pastoral epistles, one of which here is Titus. He also writes for three other reasons. If you, if you turn to the end of Titus... In chapter 3, you see some other reasons for his writing as well. It's always important as you're reading one of these books in the scripture to look at the purpose. Why are they writing this letter? You know, when you sit down and write a letter, how many of you have ever written a letter to a friend over maybe the last week or two? Maybe the last month? A couple of you have. Okay, yeah. And you write a letter, you sit down and you... You take pen and paper, or if you, you maybe do it via email, however you do it, you are writing them a letter because you have something to say to them. There's a purpose behind it. Oftentimes we send a letter because there's a reason to do so. Same with these books in the scripture. There are reasons why these authors are writing to a particular audience, or in this case, to a particular person, moved by the Holy Spirit to communicate a message. We see in chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, hasn't yet determined who that might be, when I send one of those guys to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis... For I've decided to spend the winter there. So this leads you to believe that even though Titus is currently in Crete, he's not going to be there. He's not intended to be there long term. He's going to be spelled by one of those two folks, Artemis or Tychicus. And in the meantime, when they come, then Titus is supposed to join up with Paul 
in Nicopolis. But look at verse 13. He also gives an instruction to send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. Apollos. We've heard his name before, haven't we? Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Seems like those two folks are there. And he's given an instruction here in this letter to send them with haste quickly and make sure they're taken care of as they go. Look at the next verse. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. If you maintain something, what is it you're doing? You're keeping it. In our homes, we have ongoing maintaining that has to occur, don't we? Oftentimes to our chagrin, things need to be maintained. That car you drive, you know, it'd be wonderful if you could just drive it and you didn't have to worry anything about it. It just would automatically do what it's supposed to, but you have to maintain it. You have to get at minimum, right? Like if you're like me, you know, you, you try and get your oil changed when it's supposed to be changed and you try and make sure that everything's, you know, if you've got a headlight out, you take care of it. Th- those, those kinds of things, you have to maintain it. So here, Paul is writing to Titus and one of the last instructions he's giving to him really ties into a purpose because this is a theme, a very large theme in the book of Titus. Good works, And he says to Titus, let our people also learn to maintain good works. To meet urgent needs. Why? That they may not be unfruitful. This is so very important in this book. So very important tied into Titus 2. We'll get to here in just a moment. Maintaining good works, meeting urgent needs, let our people learn. Seems as though they haven't yet learned this. Have we learned it? Maintaining good works? Oh, maybe we do one or two every now and then. Do we maintain them? Do, are, are they ongoing in our lives? Because I think as we'll see in this letter of of Titus, that our lives are to reflect this pattern of good works for a good reason, as we'll come to see. But I'm giving you the big picture purposes for why he's writing. It's important we have an understanding of that. He's, He's called to set an order. He's been left in Crete to set an order. And appoint elders in every city. He's also been called to diligently come to Paul and Nicopolis when Artemis or Tychicus arrives. To send Zenos and Apollos on their way with haste. Take care of them. See they lack nothing. And also Titus I want you to know. I want you to help our people learn what it is to maintain good works. To learn what it means to meet urgent needs. So that they might not be unfruitful. Some very good purposes for which to write. So, 
Paul leaves Titus in Crete for a time. And you get the idea as you read the epistle that Titus is on the island for only a designated period of time. But during that time, he has work to do. A lot of work to do. Huge amount of work to do. Remember what we said right at the beginning that characterized the people on this island? It was a group of lazy gluttons, evil beasts, always liars. That's the group of people he's working with on this island. He's been put on this island of Crete. And Paul has, we get the idea that Paul has, to some extent, he has been able at, at some level to attest to the demeanor and the attitude of the people. He says, this testimony is true. <laughs> I, I want you to know what that prophet of Crete said. It's true. And so what remains here is hard work to set in order the things lacking. To set in order implies that things are not in order to begin with. This setting in order has in mind, a, it's a medical term of setting in order like, like bones that might be broken. When you're taking care of bones that are broken, you're, delic- you're putting them back where they are supposed to be. They are intended place. And Paul is instructing Titus to set in order these things that ought to be, that are not currently. You know, Acts 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from Crete who actually showed up. You remember that? There were a group of people called the Cretans who showed up. No doubt their message was declared upon returning back to their homeland. So this is a country, an island, that has heard the gospel. They're not foreign to the message of Jesus. And yet the description of these people is disturbing when you read chapter 1, verse 12. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul is able to confirm such is true. Now, on the map, you might wonder where is Crete? Crete is located in the, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, It's just south on the map. If, you, if you're looking on the map, it's south of Athens. So if you find Athens on your map and go south, you're going to run into the island of Crete. Titus is left here for a time to set in order some things lacking and to appoint elders in every city as Paul had commanded him to do so. So how do you begin to do this? Where where do you start? If there was ever a leadership challenge... This would have been one of them. A leadership challenge. How do you transform, in this case, an island to turn from their evil ways and actually live out this gospel that had been delivered to them? How do you begin helping a group of Liars and lazy gluttons to see that what they do and how they go about what they do makes all the difference in adorning the doctrine that they profess. 
See, for herein was the problem. This was the problem. They were professing to know God, chapter 1, verse 16. But in their works, they were denying God. They were professing to know God, but in their works, they denied Him. It's sort of like this this operational principle at work with a held value principle at work. You might say, I believe, and then you could fill in that sentence, something about God. I believe family values are, are very important. Well, that's a great held value. But if in your operation, your living, your life says nothing about that held value, you are what many people in the world today would call a hypocrite. They don't line up. And I believe Paul is writing to Titus, and he's wanting to encourage Titus... I believe we'll see here in chapter 2 that he's got a specific call to Titus to be an example as a young man, right? Be an example. And Paul writes the same thing to Timothy, to young Timothy, remember? Be an example. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in purity, in faith. in, In many ways he's saying the same things to Titus here about being an example. The people on this island need an example, Titus. In church, I would say the same thing. The people in the world, the people in your community, the people that are in your sphere of influence, they need to see an example. Will you show it to them? So you have Titus, the Gentile. Remember, there's a little bit of a difference here between Timothy and Titus. Timothy comes from a split, a half background, right? Greek and Jew. Titus, Gentile. But here, this is interesting. As you read the book, here's what you come to find out. Many of the problems, many of these characteristics that are described in chapter 1, verse 12, they seem to flow out of a group of people primarily known as the circumcised. The Jewish people. They were the ones who were primarily, if you read verses 10 through 16, they were the ones primarily stirring up problems, subverting entire households by their teaching for what? Dishonest gain. These were the ones. And so you have Gentile Titus on this island setting in order things that are lacking taking care of a group of people who primarily happen to be the Jewish people. You've got people who have been privileged to know, right? Romans 3 comes to mind, that they had the advantage of the oracles of God. These Jewish people did. And you got a guy like Titus, a Gentile, whom, you know, Paul... If you read about Titus, one of the things you come to see is that he was very helpful in the church at Corinth. Titus was. And hey, you know what? If a guy can navigate through the trials in the church at Corinth, do you think Titus might be the right guy to lead such a mission here in Crete? I do. 
Because as I last read, Corinthians, if you read 1 Corinthians, you come to see that the church at Corinth had a whole slew of problems. And Titus was very instrumental in helping that church. So it's this Titus on this island helping. He's the one called to set right a people who have the gospel of people, listen, of people who have known the gospel, but of people who have yet to really live out this gospel. Oh, church, let's listen to this because this is so instructional. We too have heard the gospel. We have some understanding of the gospel. Many of you occupy a chair right here every Sunday and you have opportunity to hear God's word preached on week to week. The question is not, do you know what the gospel is? Can you tell and recite what? Corinthians 15, the core of the gospel, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus was raised. Praise God, we know that. The question from the book of Titus is, what are we doing in light of what we know? How are we living this out? The last two weeks, Christ's birth announced. And then last week, He arrived in Luke 2. And the question today from Titus is, having now come, Jesus has arrived. We're now some 2,000 years removed from that. How then are we living? What's it look like? When other people see you, do they see Jesus? If not, what are they seeing? This is one of the pastorals, obviously the other two, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, written near the end of Paul's life. Timothy's charged with the leadership assignment in Ephesus. Titus is charged with the leadership assignment here on the island of Crete. It's a book that clearly articulates the need for good works in the life of a follower of Jesus. And as we'll see in the text, good works are intended to naturally flow out of our lives as a new creation in Christ. Where there are no good works, there is a discrepancy. And the testimony of the follower of Jesus is maligned. We are to be about highlighting him. We are to be about showing other people that this word is true. And you see here in his catch, because when our lives are lived out in such a way that speak contrary to this word, we are not, as he says here, adorning the doctrine of God. No, we're maligning. The word. So Paul's message to Titus, a tough leadership assignment. And you know, t- today people are looking for authentic Christian living. They may not verbalize it that way, but they are looking for people who actually very closely endeavor to carry out what they profess with their mouths. 
More importantly, God is seeking those whose hearts are loyal to him and desire to live out this good news of Jesus at an individual level, at an interpersonal level, and in their own relationship with the Savior. See, Titus is instructed to set in order and appoint elders. They really go hand in hand, these two things in chapter 1, verse 5. Are not the elders going to be helpful in setting in order some things in the church? I believe that's the intention. Appointing elders in every city. In fact, it's very quickly we see after verse 5, after speaking of appointing elders, what does he then do? Where does he then turn? In verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, he gives a description of who these people are to be. Very brief description. But it's a helpful description, I believe, for Titus as he is tasked with appointing elders, it would be important that Titus knows, hey, what kind of man am I looking for here? And so we see 6, 7, 8, and 9 become very important qualifiers for this particular man who is going to be appointed as an elder. Not just on the island of Crete, but even yet today in the local church. Followed up with verse 9 is the assignment that's waiting for them. He doesn't take very long. He describes who this person ought to be. And then he immediately jumps into current situation, current context. Okay, Titus, now you know who this person is to be as you appoint an elder. Now let me tell you why they're needed. Because there are some people subverting entire households for dishonest gain. Idle talkers, deceivers whose mouths must be stopped. Verse 13 says, rebuke them. That they may be, why? Rebuke them, why? Because you've been, you've been given authority? Because you're somebody? No. You rebuke them because, so that, They might be sound in the faith. They might be healthy. That's why. He says there's a group of people who who talk like they know God, but in their works they deny him. They're disqualified, Paul says, Titus, for every good work. We're talking about good works. They are not even able to do good works. They deny him. And then you turn a corner in chapter 2. Paul turns his attention specifically to Titus. As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. You see, there were some in in the church there in Crete who were not speaking things according to sound doctrine. Therein lies one of the leadership challenges for Titus. But in chapter 2, he's saying, speak these things which are proper for sound doctrine. Remember the task that's been set forth. Set an order and appoint elders. You're here for a limited time. See that these people learn to maintain good works and meet urgent needs that they might not be unfruitful. So on the heels of verse 1, chapter 2, 
he goes into speaking to a group of people, a couple different groups of people, older men. I'm not about to say who of you here fall into that category. Older men. But he has a word for the older men. Reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. He has a word for the older women. Be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. What are they admonishing them to do? To love their husbands, to love their children. Now those seem like things we ought to be doing. Evidently that wasn't happening. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? 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 Why do all this? Here's the why. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. You see, when these things are not happening, Paul is saying to Titus, you're to teach these sound doctrine, teach these things to all of these people. To the older women, teach them to teach the younger women these things. Because when these things are not in order, when they're not set in place, what ends up happening is that the word of God gets maligned. Likewise, exhort the young men. How many young men we have in the room? I'm, I'm not afraid to ask that question. How many young men we have in the room? I like that. That's good. I like that, Ralph. Excellent. 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 That's good. We've got lots of young men here. Maybe a whole room full of young men. Young men, ex- be sober-minded. And by the way, he's, in verses 6, 7, and 8, really you get the idea here. He's speaking this directly to Titus as a young man, right? Exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. A pattern of what? A pattern of good works. In doctrine, integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Can I just say a word here? Uh, This is specific to the young men. It may also apply to young ladies, but I'm going to target it at young men. Young men who profess to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just touch on this because I've been around people who have professed the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I hear coming out of their mouth is not sound speech. It's disappointing. It's what we would call foul language we have to be mindful of how we use these tongues they're dangerous James chapter 3 tells us the caution of these tongues but young men use your tongue rightly I think it's easy when you get into the arena of of your peer group and this, again, can apply to men, young men, young women, to speak like those in your peer group, 
the proverb writer talks about making sure we take inventory of those we hang out with. Amen? We're going to end up looking like them. Oftentimes, if we hang out with them enough, we're going to end up speaking like them if we hang out with them enough. I remember as a, as a teenager, I remember going to a basketball camp down in Kentucky for a week. And I roomed with a young man I didn't know. Never met the guy. Didn't know him. It was interesting. And I don't remember much about the young man other than the fact that he was from Kentucky. Now, those of you from Kentucky, I'm sorry. But when I came back home, I talked like I was from Kentucky. And I didn't even try to. It was just one of those things. I had been around him all week long. And I was talking like I was from Kentucky. You see... It's sort of a, a humorous illustration, but the point I hope is, is taken. The ones you hang around with, you're eventually going to look a lot alike. You might, you might be inclined to dress like them. You might be inclined to want to look like them. You might be inclined to want to speak like them. I just want to point that out because I think it's so important. Sound, speech... One who is an opponent may not be, may, may be ashamed and have nothing evil to say of you. And then there's this group, the bond servants. You know, back in the day, bond servants, masters, slaves, right? Bond servants. He's even addressing bond servants. This is pretty interesting. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well pleasing in all things, not answering back. Hey, I want you to take out the trash. Well, I don't really feel like not answering back. Or not pilfering. What is it to pilfer something? If you pilfer something, what do you do with it? You steal it. You take it as your own. And as a bondservant, you're not to do that. Showing all good fidelity. Why? Again, let's come back and ask the why on some of these. Why? Here it is. That they may adorn... The doctrine of God, the teaching of God, our Savior in all things. If you are adorning something, in this case the doctrine of God, the teaching of God, you, are, you adorn something, you, you dress it, you, you make it look a certain way. And for this bondservant to be obedient, to be well-pleasing, to not steal, to not speak back inappropriately, that is going to adorn the teaching of God. So he gets to verse 10. We get into 11. All of this ties in 11 through 15. We can't just go 11, 15. There, there has to be all this other understanding context into it because it's what makes 11 through 15 make sense. For the, we even have a, a connector word here, for. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to whom? To just the old men? To just the older women? To just the younger women? To just the bond servants? Or masters? No. This grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Do you see how 11 fits in with what's just been spoken? This grace of God that brings salvation has appeared... Has appeared. 
Present tense or past tense? Past tense. It's appeared. The grace of God has appeared to all men. And he's just shown us by walking us through. Paul has charged Titus to teach sound doctrine in the churches. And he's to set an order with all of these groups of people. How to live and operate in the context of church life. Together, as a body, how do we do this? He sets it in place. And then he says, "Oh, for, for the grace of God. The grace of God. What is the grace of God? As you think about God's grace, what is it that comes to mind? We read in the circle out in the hallway Ephesians 2, didn't we, men? And we see in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by what? Grace. Through faith. And that not of your own. Why not of your own? Why is it that God set it up in such a way that it wouldn't be of your own? He says in the same passage. Lest any one of you should, what? Boast. Yeah, we, we can be pretty good at that. It's by grace you've been saved. And so we see here in the text, this grace of God. It's been said that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Take one of those letters for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Or maybe another way to look at grace is getting something you don't deserve. Or or possibly a third way to understand grace would be seeing it as God's blessings poured out in lieu of the curse that ought to be there. There's a blessing curse idea in in, in Deuteronomy that's spoken of. Blessings that he's poured out upon us. God's grace. You know, church, I wonder how often we consider and think about this wonderful grace, Jesus. We sing a lot of songs about this grace, don't we? But I wonder how often we really consider the significance of this grace. You see, because this grace of God that brings salvation teaches us something. It instructs us. Grace teaches us. What does it teach us? The text tells us. It tells us, first of all, by pointing out what it, what it ought to help us not to do. How it ought to help us not live. Denying, renouncing, or I like Kevin's version. Was that the NIV you read? I liked it. It was right on point. Saying no to. That's the idea. Saying no, what are we saying no to? We're saying no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's what we say no to. That's what we renounce. That's what we deny. So I need to ask the question, is that something that we do? Or are we participants in those worldly lusts 
Are we participants in ungodliness? Ungodliness, church, let's understand ungodliness. Ungodliness at its root is essentially not thinking, not having thoughts about God, thinking little about him, thinking little about what he's done, little about his word. Oh, none of us here would like to think of us as ungodly. If you read Romans 1, you see ungodly and unrighteous used in the same context. See, unrighteous speaks more of the acts, the things we would do. Ungodly is more of the, just the, the general demeanor of how we live and our thought life and our mind. Are we, are we thinking about God in our days? Those times when we're not, when we're not thinking about him at all. By, de- by definition, we'd be ungodly. Paul is writing to Titus and he's saying, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it's teaching us something. If we are looking for this, if we are aware of this, the grace of God that brings salvation, it's teaching us something. And the first thing it's teaching us is how not to live, what we need to get rid of. I think about the track runner. You remember the runner who's running the race. And the runner who's running the race, I want you to think about two people at the starting blocks. And the one person at the starting blocks has his normal attire on that you might normally see someone running a sprint. And that other person who's lined up right next to him has this big, heavy coat, winter coat on. And he's got these, he's got like a, this, this heavy life preserver-esque vest on. And he's got these ankle weights and he's got all this stuff on and they're both at the starting blocks which one's going to win the one who's unhindered see I, I think that there are things in our lives that we need to just we need to drop a hold of and understand that to really take hold of this grace that has brought salvation to us It's teaching us this one thing in particular that we need to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. These things that want to attach themselves to us. Hebrews chapter 12 comes to mind. Running in such a way, right? Corinthians 9 is also another one. If we're going to run to get the prize, we've got to run in such a way to get that prize. And we can't be spending our wheels and spending our time and spending our energies ungodly living and worldly lusts. 1 John chapter 2 talks about what some of those worldly lusts might be. The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, right? The pride of life. Those kinds of things. Those are not the things we need to be spending our time on. But then he says, this grace of God, not only does it say, teach us what not, how not to live, but then he, he turns the corner and he says, it teaches us how we should live. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I love the original language there. The original language says, in the now age. In the now age, right now. Right now, December 28th, 2014, right now. 
We're, we're supposed to live this right now. Soberly or self-controlled, uprightly, and godly, as opposed to ungodly. Godly, thinking much of him. Considering him and all that we do. Taking him into consideration with our plans. Taking him into consideration with our wallets and our checkbooks. This is the way we should live. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Old women, old men, young men, young women, slaves, all groups of people. This grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And it's teaching us to say no to some things, but it's teaching us also to say yes. And it's teaching us that right now we're to live a certain way. And if you look at those three terms, those three adverbs, soberly, righteously, godly, they really in many ways, they, 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 they point to three specific arenas of our lives. Soberly, self-controlled really speaks to more of the personal aspect of our lives. We're to live soberly. We're to have self-control in our lives. Righteously. Speaks of uprightly. Speaks of our interactions with other people. Righteous living. We are to be righteous in the way we live and interact with other people. And godly... Specifically in that relationship we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to think much of Him. So it's interesting to even see those words and be able to see how specifically those play out in our lives. This grace of God teaches us what to say no to. It teaches us what to say yes to and how we should live right now. And as it teaches us, in the process of teaching us these things... We are to live soberly, righteously, godly in the now age, doing what? It's interesting that it comes right after saying the present age, because this grace of God, past tense, has appeared. Jesus Christ has appeared. God's grace. God gave to us his only begotten son. The greatest gift he could have given to us. It truly was a grace gift. He has appeared. And now we're called to, in light of his appearing, we're called to presently, in the now age, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. And at the same time, looking, waiting, expectantly. Look at the text, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The ESV, I, I believe, has, uh, has this well in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we live in the now age, living soberly, righteously, and godly. And at the same time, we are, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, eagerly awaiting whom? A Savior. We are citizens of heaven, right? Yes, we're citizens here of these United States of America, but we also eagerly await a Savior as a citizen of heaven. And so we're looking for this blessed hope. 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God. Jesus is God, is he not? He is our Savior. We've talked about that the last two weeks. Our Savior. And so now verse 14, look at what he does. As he calls us to look, he's called us to live now. And as we live now, we are to be looking for what's yet to come. And then he's going to go on, and as he's just talked about our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, this reminded him of who he is. And so he gives him some description, gives us some descriptors of who this is, who gave himself. Here's what he did. He gave himself for us. Church, in short, that's the gospel. He gave himself for us. Why? Tells us. Two things. To redeem us. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Set us free. Set us free from what? From every lawless deed, he says. Set us free from the chains. You know, there are some of us here who can remember the day when we felt like we were in chains. Literal chains. We were walking, as the Bible says, in darkness. And the Lord rescued us. From that darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his light. Praise God. He's redeemed us. He's bought us. He bought us when we were not worthy to be bought. There wasn't anything behind the glass window that said, boy, you need to buy Kalen Watkins. Look at Kalen Watkins. Boy, I'm telling you, if everybody could just be just like Kalen Watkins. No, that wasn't how it worked. No offense to Kalen. But that's not how it worked. He redeemed us. The Bible says that while we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. He redeemed us. He set us free. You remember the Jewish people when they're having a conversation, Jesus is talking about some things in John, I think chapter 7, chapter 8. And they get all ruffled. We're no one slave. We've never been captive. No, he said, listen, he says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And they couldn't see that. They couldn't understand that. They didn't understand that in Christ Jesus, there was this freedom. And John chapter 10 says... Jesus, I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd. And because I am the good shepherd in the gate, here's here's the way this works. You come in and out and you have great freedom. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He has redeemed us from every lawless deed. So he gave himself for us To redeem us, he gave himself for us, secondly, to purify for himself. Notice that. To purify for himself. There's a lot about each one of us that need purifying, amen? He redeemed us. He saved us. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed... And purify for himself his own special people. If you turn for just a moment to 1 John. 
In 1 John, we see in chapter 3, you know, we, we see dimly here, but for a time, don't we? In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, We're children of God. It's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he's revealed, when he comes, that's the blessed hope we have when he's coming, right? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, his hope that he's coming back, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we have a pure, holy God given himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed something we didn't deserve and he's going to do this to purify for himself because he himself is holy he's pure he's going to purify us reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 which talks about how we are to carry out this salvation these, this good work as God is working in us. You know, the work out your salvation passage. We are to work it out. And I see that it's, it's a great parallel mesh together with 1 John. And also what's said here in Titus chapter 2. Purify for himself his own special people. His own treasured possession. Tell me church, what's it like to know that you are a treasured possession of the most holy God? Doesn't get any better than that. We need to maybe just carry that one in our pocket with us wherever we go. So that when circumstances come our way, we pull that back out of our pocket. And we look at it. And we read it. We take it in. And we meditate upon it. Who we are in Christ. He's purified for himself his own special people. Listen, it's not done. Zealous for good works. Purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you are zealous for something, what's that mean? What are you doing if you're zealous for something? There were a group of people called the zealots. You remember those folks? Now maybe they were zealous about some of the wrong things. But this whole idea of going after something with all that you have, with all that you're might, you're zealous for, in this case, good works. You see, this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul says to Titus, is the one who gave himself for you. That he might redeem you from every lawless deed and purify for himself You might think, well, that's awful selfish of him to do that for self. Hey, listen, if if we haven't gotten over that, we need to go back to the word and, and read again who God is. He's God. We're not. He's the potter, we're the clay. Romans 9. And because he's God, he it also says, by the way, just in case for those of you who are still thinking some of those thoughts, He's a jealous God. Some of you don't like the fact that it says that he's a jealous God. and Because all we think of is its connection to our human understanding of being jealous. God is above all things. And we ought not be sitting back playing critic about what it says about God. Instead, if we understand the word of God, we understand that what it says is true. 
He's purifying for himself a pure bride, is he not? Think of Ephesians 5 and that passage about washing in the water and the husband and wife and that imagery there with Christ and the church. And what he's about doing, he's about preparing a bride, a pure, spotless bride. Zealous for good works, desiring good works. And then he says, speak these things. You know, it's interesting. He started verse 1 in chapter 2, speak the things which are proper. And now he concludes, speak these things. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Titus has been given delegated authority to lead in the island of Crete. And he's been told to speak these things, to exhort, to rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Why would someone despise him? He's not the Apostle Paul. You're not Paul. No, Paul says no. Let no one discard you or disregard you. Because you see, the Lord has placed you here on this island of Crete for a particular time to take care of things that are out of order, to set them in order, to appoint elders in every city. Yes, Titus, you've been given a task, a large leadership task. And don't let people throw you aside from what God has called you to be doing here. Speak these things. Churches, we consider this task before Titus. I was reminded, and you might think to yourself, you know, Titus was given an island to minister to. Huge leadership task. But I was also reminded of just thinking about the idea of being on an island. You know, and some of you here this morning, maybe you are currently feeling like that's where you are. You are on an island. You are on your own. What to do? God's word, church, is helpful here because these instructions, while they were no doubt given to Titus for the people and the church in Crete, I believe these instructions are also given to each one of us and they're relevant to those of us in the assembly, in the church. I believe that's one of the reasons he penned through the Spirit these pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus to give us instruction on how we might live in this local assembly, this body called the church. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Many of you here know that grace of God. You realize that grace of God in Christ Jesus has appeared. We've talked about that the last two weeks. And because that grace of God has appeared to all men, young and old, men and women, no matter what your class, no matter what your rank, that grace of God is available to all has appeared. And it's teaching us something. 
And I pray this morning it's teaching you something as it's taught me. Taught me to, first of all, say no to some things. Or, or maybe elsewhere, as he says to Timothy, to flee certain things. And then to say yes to some other things. To another way of living. Or to pursue this way of living. Living soberly, righteously, and godly. In the now age. Right now. Whether you are a young person here today. Or whether you are an older person here today. God has called each one of you to walk To live in such a way that it reflects the name of Christ Jesus. And it doesn't malign this word. Let's be about in our lives, church, as we, just in a couple days, begin a new calendar. It's always a great time to begin New Year's resolutions, is it not? Anybody have one? They're ready to start. No one has one. Okay, I don't know what that means, if that's a good thing or not. I hope as we begin a new year that it would be our desire to walk soberly, self-controlled, to walk righteously amongst one another, that we would walk in godliness. Maybe one of the things for this next year for you to consider Start with this word of God. And I don't know where all of you are at with this word of God. But I'll tell you, I need it, and I know you need it, all of us need it. A daily intake of his word of truth. Maybe that's something that we can look at for this next year as a, just a practical tool for how do we walk this out? How do we live this out? It's important that we have God's word of truth briefing us every day of our lives if we're going to walk this way. And so whether that ends up being a scheduled reading plan for the year or whether that's you being disciplined to just read through the scriptures. I think it would be helpful as we think about adorning the doctrine, the teaching of God our Savior. As we think about not maligning his word. If we're in this word and desire this word. Remember our desire for his word flows out of what? Our desire and love for him. It all comes back to where are we at in a relationship with him. Teaches us to say no. Teaches us then, shows us what we say yes to. And as we say yes to living this way in the now age, we are looking for the blessed hope. We are eagerly awaiting a savior. Our great God. The one who gave himself for you and for me. That he might redeem us. And purify for himself his own treasured possession. A people zealous for good works. Church, let's be that in this coming year. Let's be that today. Let's be that tomorrow. And let's encourage one another in that. Because the last thing I believe any of us desire or want. Is to get to the end of the line of our days. And to realize that we have been unfruitful. Let's be fruitful for the kingdom of God. For the sake and cause of Christ. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given to us your word of truth. And we do thank you, Lord, for this passage, this whole book of Titus. The instruction that you, through your spirit, through the apostle Paul, gave to Titus. Titus, in many ways, was battle-tested already up to this point. And Titus is the one, Lord, that you chose to take on this leadership task in Crete. Amidst a group of people who were described as lazy, liars, evil. Father, what a challenge that would have been for Titus. Father, I thank you for the grace that has appeared. For that grace teaches us something. And I pray it would teach all of us here something yet today. That your grace that has appeared. That because of Christ having come. It would be our heart's desire to live in a way. That reflects what we know. That reflects our profession. May we not be a group of people like the ones we read about in chapter 1, verse 16. Those who profess Christ, but by their works they deny Him. May we instead be zealous for good works. May we desire to learn what it is to maintain good works. To meet urgent needs as they come before our eyes and our attention. All that we might not be unfruitful. It all comes back and it all points back to you, Lord. Make our lives about you. All that we do. All that we say. Father, I pray that it would be about you. And we would remember having been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. And therefore, I pray we live in that way, with that understanding. You are so good to us, Father, and we thank you. And thank you for this good word of truth that you've given. Pray that in this next year we would walk in this word together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.